This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Most of these interviews were originally conducted for KPFA's Bookwaves program and its predecessor, Probabilities. This podcast was previously posted on January 1st, 2017. Richard Adams, the author of Watership Down, The Plague Dog, Shardick, and other novels, died on Christmas Eve 2016 at the age of 96. Born in 1920, he served as a liaison officer during World War II and later joined the British Civil Service, rising to the rank of Assistant Secretary to the Ministry of Housing. Past the age of 50 and a lifelong civil servant, Adams began telling stories to his daughters about talking rabbits while on a car trip. The daughters prompted him to turn the stories into a novel, and after four failed attempts, a fifth try in 1972 found a publisher, and Watership Down became an international bestseller and later a beloved classic fantasy. Two years later, he quit his job and became a full-time author. Richard Adams followed Watership Down with Shardick, a novel about a giant bear. Along the way, he became an advocate against the use of animal testing, which is the subject of his third novel, The Plague Dogs. It was on tour for that third novel, upon its American publication in the spring of 1978, that I had the chance to interview Richard Adams. Though I'd conducted a handful of interviews with a co-host, this was my first solo shot, and most of the interview concerns the Plague Dogs. The interview was recorded in what sounds like a cavernous room. Neither the date nor location were noted on the cassette. It's the work of a 27-year-old novice interviewer who was talking with his first best-selling author. There were a number of questions I had been planning to ask, but they were answered in a dialogue between two characters in The Plague Dogs, so Peter Scott and Ronald Lockley, toward the end of the book. What happens is that Lockley chastises you by name for representing animals acting as people when, quote, actually it had been nearer the mark to consider them as automata controlled by the computer they inherit in their genetic makeup. Yes. Do you agree with that? Yes, I do. And this is what I've learned from my friendship with Ronald Lockley. Ronald Lockley is one of the most eminent naturalists that we have. Well, I would say in Britain, were it not that he now lives in New Zealand. But he's a very well-known and respected naturalist. I used his book, The Private Life of the Rabbit, to make sure that I got my rabbits right in Watership Down. This naturally led to a meeting between us, and we liked each other and have become very good friends. He comes to stay with me, I go and stay with him, and so on. Uh, He said something very interesting about the plague dogs. He said, I'll be frank with you, Richard, I never really liked Watership Down because I felt that your rabbits were not rabbits. But by God, he said, your dogs are dogs. It's quite uncanny. The idea of introducing Sir Peter Scott and Ronald Lockley, who are, of course, real live people, into the book, to have a conversation about man's relationship to the animals, was one I proposed to Ronald Lockley, and he agreed, provided that he and Sir Peter Scott could check it out. I was rather gratified when I sent them the manuscript to find that although I had made up the whole conversation myself, they did not object to any of the views that had been attributed to them and thoroughly approved of that passage in the book. The truth is that it was Ronald Lockley who taught me that animals are, in fact, much more like computers than self-determining 
people. Everybody thinks of animals as being like ourselves. You know, if the dog does something naughty, you think, oh, uh, what a naughty dog. Actually, it would be far more valid to think of the dog as a kind of computer which received a stimulus and reacted to that stimulus in the manner of an automaton. If the dog pees on the floor, something has made the dog pee on the floor. And instead of sort of beating the dog or something, it'd be better to find out what it is that's making him pee. I mean, dogs pee to lay claim to territory. It has their smell yeah. on it, you see. So why is the dog peeing in that particular place? Maybe something is challenging his feelings of territorial belonging or something like this. But it, I have found that it works, and it's, it's uh, helped me and revolutionized my outlook on, on the animal kingdom to regard animals as computers. You can treat the animal much better. Given that, could you, could you think you could write Watership down now? Well... Nobody could write the same book twice, I yeah. don't think. But no, if I wrote another fantasy, it would be different from Watership Down in just the same way as um, Plague Dogs is different from Watership Down. Your ideas are continually developing and changing. You don't consider Plague Dogs a fantasy? Of course it is. Yeah, okay. yeah. Yes, but it's different from Watership Down. I agree with Ronald Lockley. I think the dogs are far more doggy than the rabbits are rabbity. Well, I think we also know dogs a lot better than we know rabbits. Maybe, maybe. It struck me in Watership Down, at least, the allegorical aspects of the book, and I assume there were allegorical aspects. No, that was not deliberate. People have often asked me, as they put it, what is the real meaning of Watership Down? And the answer is that none was intended. I was simply writing for my little girls a cliffhanger about rabbits. And any other meanings are entirely accidental and unintended. I always explain this to people with an analogy of yeah. bell casting. If you cast a bell, a church bell, to yeah. ring the note C when it's struck, that bell will have overtones. A trained musical ear can hear the note G ringing under the note C, that is the, the, the dominant, as it's called by musicians. Well, th this is what is called an overtone. This is an inseparable physical process from casting the bell. In other words, you can't stop it. Well, similarly, if a story is really resonant, like a bell, it's going to have overtones, and you can't stop it. But I didn't intend them. Did Watership Down take place in a real part of England? Yes, it did. They're all real. Including Watership Down? Oh, very much so. In fact, a great many people go to see Watership Down. I believe it gets quite thick in summer. I haven't been there for some time. But yes, indeed, part of the charm of the book to English people is that the places are all real, and you can go and see them. The rabbits live there? Yes. It's also quite true that young rabbits who feel crowded out of a warren often undertake long journeys across country in just the way that's described in the book. Why did you put the rabbit mythologies? The, the El Herrera stories? Yeah. Well, I copied this from Dickens, the Pickwick Papers. If you've read that wonderful book, you'll remember that the narrative is interrupted by the telling of stories. Now, the Pickwick Papers is a comic book. Highly comic, one of the funniest books ever written. And it's interesting that many of the stories interpolated in, mm. this, in the story are very horrific and uh, savage and sad. And it occurred to me that one could use this the other way round. Watership Down, the story, is fairly exciting. But I thought it'd be nice to interpose in the course of the story uh, some funny tales to give the reader a relief from yeah. the 
excitement of the main story. Well, you do the same kind of things in uh, Plague Dogs to a lesser degree. That is true. When uh, I think it's Snitter tells about things his mother told him. Well, Ralph tells the animal's version of the story of the fall of man. Uh, that's one interpolation. Then there's another when Snitter the tells moon. the story about the death of his master. There aren't quite so many interpolations as there are in Watership Down, but there certainly are interpolations. There are in Shardick too, of course. Belcartrazit tells a story at one point, and it's a little trick of mine in writing. In Plague Dogs, now, you live on the Isle of Man. That's right. Which is off the coast of, of uh, sort of off the coast of Scotland and England. Yes, that's, yes, that's about right, okay. yes. You are familiar with the Lakeland District, which is, I assume, why you used it. I know it very well indeed. That's why I used it, yes. And is that why you use real people there? Yes. I thought this would be rather fun. The part of the Lake District I go to, I'm very well known there. I've been going there for 30 years. I spent my honeymoon there. And I know all these people, the shepherds and the people in the story, very well. And I thought it'd be rather fun to put them in as a kind of act of gratitude because I've received so much kindness and hospitality there from the... Uh, the farmers and the peasants, and I thought it'd be nice to put them in, and they, they were tickled pink. They're absolutely delighted. Did they think that the portrayals were correct or accurate? Well, I haven't had a chance to ask them, because the last time I saw them was last fall, when the English edition of the book was published. Mm. And a day or two after it came out, I gave a party in the local pub, uh, a, a dinner party. In Coniston? No, it was in Broughton in Furness and invited them all, and I gave them each a copy of the book. So I suppose I'll hear about it next time I go back. Are those farms passed down generation to generation kind of thing? Yes, very much. They're not usually owned by people. They're usually tenanted. They're tenant farmers who take the farms. But very often they are passed on, yes. Are there any real prototypes for the dogs, Snitter and Ralph? They both uh, have strong affinities with my own dog called Will. Two things about Will that gave me ideas for Ralph. Uh, one is that he's frightened of water. Will will not go near water. He was frightened as a puppy. He fell in a, in a stream, and he's been frightened of water ever since. Secondly, he has a rather bad temper, and he's apt suddenly to lose his temper and blow his cool. He's like Snitter in that he's devoted to his master. And it seems, though, that, and I may be wrong, that you had a special affection for Snitter as opposed to Ralph. I mean, that seemed to come through. Well, Snitter was uh, a better character to invent dialogue for. He was a more intelligent dog, even if he was mad. He, he was a more intelligent dog, and he was more talkative. He had more to talk about than Ralph. He knew about the ways of men. A novelist is always thinking about the relationship between his characters. It seemed yeah. to me if you had a sort of big, heavy, rough, tough John Wayne sort of dog on the one hand, and then you have a little quick nervous dog. They're a bit like King Lear and the Fool. The dialogue would, would come easier with the opposition of these two characters. And of course, the use of madness is a tradition in English literature. You'll recall that Shakespeare makes a lot of use of madness, the fool, sure. Ophelia. Uh, so does Webster in his plays, The Duchess of Malfi makes use of madness. I have seen it set in an exam paper before now, examine the use made of madness by the Elizabethan dramatists. You can do a lot with madness because you can use irony. The mad person says something that appears to be mad, but, but which more closely examined is shown to be a kind of ironic comment on what is happening. And I wanted to try to do this with Snitter, and I think it's, 
it's mostly successful. I think it comes off. It allows for the ghost story, the ghost dog. You don't have to think that the ghost was real at all. Maybe it was a product of Snitter's tormented brain. On the other hand, you also know that the dog did exist. Every educated person in England knows this story. It really happened in 1804. And Wordsworth wrote a poem about it, and so did Sir Walter Scott. If you want to look it up, Wordsworth's poem is called Fidelity, and you'll find it in the collected poems of Wordsworth. I forget what Sir Walter Scott's poem is called, but it's on the same subject. The whole of England was very much arrested by this pathetic story of the terrier bitch that remained three months by the dead body of its master. I always think myself that the dog probably ate the body. And that uh, gave, was what gave me the idea for the death of Geoffrey Westcott. When I told my friends that I was going to have the dogs eat a man's dead body, they said, you'll never get away with that. But in fact, I have got away with it. I found the book very depressing, at least for the first seven-eighths of the book, when there seems to be no conceivable way that either of them are going to possibly get out of the problem they're in, uh, though there is a hint before you actually say it that there might be a way out. Snitter's master's sister makes a slight error in speaking. Yes. You were on to that, were you? Yeah. By that point, I realized that, aha, aha, he is leaving a hole open for, uh, for a potentially happy ending. I like a happy ending. Jane Austen, you know, said once that she always liked to have a happy ending. She thought readers preferred it. There's only one problem with that happy ending. It's got to do with uh, the body being eaten. Huh? I can't believe, maybe maybe I'm just too cynical about it, I don't know, but I can't believe that the army and the police and everybody are going to let two dogs that ate a human body away, even when they have a master, even when everything seems to come out all right in the end. Well, I don't know how well you know England and the English people, but they're very much into animals, and anything connected with the lovability of an animal or cruelty to animals will bring the English people screaming to their feet. And I think that if the dog's lawful owner turned up, and if that lawful owner was a, a hospitalized guy who'd come out of hospital in the way that's described in the book, and if he had the backing of a popular British newspaper, I think he would get away with it. Especially if the other guy, the guy yeah. on, the, on the other side, was a politician who was very anxious not to get in bad with the public. The British public are very animal-orientated. If they're so animal-orientated, why does a research center like that exist? And I assume from your introduction that research centers like that do exist. I'm afraid they do, yes. People are becoming increasingly concerned about the use and abuse of animals uh, for these purposes. Not long ago, when ICI, Imperial Chemical Industries, one of the leading British corporations, set out on the search for what they called a safe cigarette, their project was to have control groups of dogs who would be trussed and masked and compelled to inhale the smoke from 30 cigarettes a day. Then after two or three years, the dogs would be killed and their lungs examined. And then this would be tried with other forms of cigarette until they found a safe cigarette. And a party of guys like you bust into the laboratory and let the dogs out. And then they went and told the police what they'd done and said, arrest us if you like, we don't care, we'll go to prison. The surgery. Well, all I can tell you is that these things do happen. Of course, there's rather more justification for experimentation with animals if you are actually looking for a cure 
if it's if it's real medical stuff. I mean, yeah. and I make this point quite fairly in the book in connection with Mr. Powell's daughter. You remember this point is made quite fairly. Now, I don't pretend to have the answer to this. This is a moral dilemma. We all have to come to our own conclusions. I, I don't know the answer any more than you do. But I do suggest that the testing of cosmetics on animals is totally unjustifiable. And the, the testing of cigarettes on animals is totally unjustifiable. To force animals who do not themselves indulge in a vice to take part in a human vice to see whether we can do so. Well, it's like what Tacitus says about the Emperor Nero. The Emperor Nero compelled slaves to eat huge quantities of food and then cut them open to see how it affected their stomachs in order that he could eat more himself. Well, this is disgusting. I, I think to compel animals to use things that they don't use, but we do, things like hairspray and, 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 and lipstick and uh, smoking cigarettes, yeah. to see whether we can, I think is... Well, if there is a God, I should think it must make him very angry. We have no right to inflict suffering on any animal when it is not at all to the animal's interest, but it is to ours. What I said to a guy in Chicago when we were discussing this subject the other night, he said, of course it's all right. I said, all right, then why not do it on human children if it's so all right? Why not use your own species? Why, why use another species that wouldn't want to play if it had any, any choice in the matter? This guy said that the Florida rat had been used for the poliomyelitis vaccine, and what did I think of that? I said, well, if I were the head of the Florida rats negotiating with the humans, I would say, please, sir, would you leave me out of this, because we're not really terribly interested. Perhaps you wouldn't mind using your own species. And to do them justice, I believe that scientists do experiment on themselves whenever they're quite convinced that it would be safe to do so, even undergoing minor illnesses in the cause of science. But uh, my point is that it seems very unfair to use animals who are no less creatures of God than we are. The plain truth is that we've got the power and they haven't. Is there any Dr. Boycott that you've ever run across or is that a completely fictional? Dr. Boycott is not a real person. He was meant to typify several people who said sadistic. The word sadistic is very much misused these days. Sadism is when you get sexual pleasure out of the infliction of cruelty. I wouldn't say he was cruel either. What I understand by cruelty is when you set your wits to work to, to torture and torment. You know, you, you've got a criminal or something in a primitive society and somebody sits down and invents a string of tortures. This is cruelty when you set your wits to work. The scientist is neither sadistic nor cruel. He's just callous. Indifferent. That's about what they're like, actually. I've talked to them. That's about what they're like. I was talking one day about our cat. It had a litter of kittens. And I said, I don't know what we're going to do with them. Far too many. I'm afraid some will have to be drowned. Oh, he said, don't do that. Bring them round to me. I said, I will not. At that time, he was working on this uh, lungworm infection business. This comes into the book. I don't know if you remember. Mr. Powell describes the effect of the lungworm injections on the kittens to Dr. Boycott. Oh, right. They were very nasty. Uh, I also remember the monkey. That was really carried out. Social deprivation experiment. Searching for a, an animal who loves man, who's intelligent, trained, and then cutting open its head to remove part of the brain or whatever they did, which I don't think was made quite clear. No, well, to tell you the truth, this was a bit of what we in England call duck shoving. That is to say, you, uh, you kick it around a bit. I don't know exactly what the details of this experiment were, but I do know of a similar experiment that was carried out.
And of course, the heart transplant surgery in South Africa by Dr. Christian Barnard involved the, the killing of hundreds of baboons. Before they were able to do a heart transplant, they'd done it on hundreds and hundreds of baboons. Well, my argument is, are you so sure that, that one human being's life for a few more years is worth the life of, of hundreds of baboons? Because I'd say that was very arguable. If you could kill a thousand baboons and save the life of Hitler or Richard Nixon, or even you and me, for we're all sinners. Animals have one great advantage over us. They cannot sin. What sin? Sin is doing what you know in your better mind to be wrong. Well, an animal can't do this, you see. Why is it necessarily true that we're all sinners? Are you a Christian? No. Well, this is a basic of Christian doctrine, that we are all sinners. I'm a Christian. Well, it's also a part of uh, very much of Judaism, a religion for which I have the greatest respect, that all, all men need redemption by the love of God. All religious feeling starts from this, actually. You can't get anywhere until you recognize that you're a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you don't need God. Animals don't need God because animals are completely at one with God. Animals move in response to instinct. They have no choice in the matter. They're, they're like an extension of the mind of God. We are able to revolt from the will of God. We should therefore feel a certain humility before the animals, who are more beautiful than we are. But these are the realms of philosophy and theology. Why did you give the Todd, the fox, a difficult-to-understand accent? Yes, I'm very glad you asked that question, and I'd like to explain. The Geordie dialect is one of the most difficult-to-understand of all the many dialects which are spoken in the British Isles. If you hear Newcastle workmen talking among themselves, you'll hardly understand a word. I could do a bit now, and the listeners would probably not understand a word. <laughs> We'd been in Boozer three years and come by in London. By, we're fair going to high up to Brune in Clarts. I says, how we can he, lad? How do we hear him? Nee, says, I'm bound for hard lass. What did you just say? We'd been in the pub for two or three hours and came outside into the lane, and he was fairly going to bring up his beer into the mud. I said, you'd better go home, lad. Yes, he said, I think I'll go home to my wife. That was what I said. Now, when the dogs get out into the wild, they're confused and bewildered, and they know nothing. They even think that the wild is something that the men have made. And that the natural yes, is... the town yeah, is the... Is the, is the a, and now, then, the, like the only creature that they can call their friend, and very much in inverted commas, for the Todd knows nothing of friendship, as you and I understand it. He's just uh, out for what he can get. The only creature they can call a friend is this extraordinary cryptic beast whose very speech they can hardly understand. Now, if you make him talk like this, you compel the reader to share the confusion and bewilderment of the dogs. And it seemed to me that if the reader was not up for this, that was just too bad. And yet, in the British version, mm. the Todd's dialect is far more difficult and authentic, and it's been watered down a good deal for American consumption. I love dialects, though. They fascinate me. Was the dialect that the Todd was speaking the same as the dialect that, say, Dennis Williamson was speaking? No, Dennis Williamson is speaking Lancashire, which is a fairly easy dialect, actually, although I think you'd have some difficulty with it. The Todd is a wanderer. He's come from about 40 miles north, and he's speaking Upper Tyneside, which, which is different. Which is almost to the Scottish border? Yes, yes, it is the, uh, the, the dialect spoken on the Scottish border. 
And it has certain affinities with with Scottish dialect. For instance, the Todd says "brune" for brown, "dune" for down, and so on. This is this is in effect Scotch. But the thing about Geordie is that this part of England was a thousand years ago part of the Viking kingdom, and it actually incorporates a great many words which are Scandinavian. For instance, him, they say him, again him, are you going home? Him is actually the Swedish, the modern Swedish word for home. They have a lot of words that are not in use elsewhere in England. For example, clarts, mud, hoy, throw. These are Scandinavian words. You have to learn a whole Geordie vocabulary if you want to talk Geordie. Idioms too, the the common Geordie greeting, what fettle the day. Uh, To fettle is to... Uh, to fix something, to do a job. I say, say the electric light bulb blows. Yeah. I, I say, ah, dinner mind, I'll fettle that. I'll fix it up. But a common Geordie greeting is, uh, how way, lad, what fettle the day? How do you see the day making out? All these things have to be learned if you want to uh, speak Geordie. I sort of got the feel of what Lakeland is like. I assume you find it to be an incredibly beautiful country. It's lovely. If you like trail walking, if you're, if you're for the great outdoors, it's mm. the place. It's wonderful. Why did you set it on the mainland and not say on the Isle of Man, which you're even more familiar with since you live there? I wanted to... to write about the Lake District, which I love. I'm going to write a book about the Isle of Man sometime. Do you plan to keep with talking animals? No, I'm working at the moment on my, my, a new novel, which is my first attempt at writing about living people in contemporary society. It's a, a story, a realistic story about human beings in contemporary society. I also seem to notice, as the book wore on, though I may have been wrong, that it seemed like you almost got more interested in what the humans were doing and less in the dogs. And the emphasis seemed to shift from the dogs and the Todd, which was in the early part of the book, to Digby Driver and Mr. Powell, who were the pro- more the protagonists of the second half of the book. I would, I'm surprised you got that impression, because I would have thought the interest remained with the dogs until the very end. But it's quite true that once Digby Driver enters the story, the element of satire on the British gutter press certainly becomes stronger. There's a very strong feeling of distaste and dislike of this type of reporting in England at the moment. And a lot of people have said that they are jolly glad that I had a good swipe at the, at the gutter press in Digby Driver. And the journalists themselves were absolutely livid. The book got a very bad press in England, uh, on, I think largely on this account. But the interesting thing is that it didn't destroy the sales. That's a type of press that disappeared in the United States a long time ago and is making a comeback, particularly with a man named Rupert Murdoch. I have a very good impression of the American press, all the same, and I'd like to take this opportunity of putting it on record. I have found, and I've done a great deal of interviewing in the last four or five years, that if you tell an American journalist something, he can be relied upon to report what you said. The British press, for some reason or other, will not do this. They go away and twist it to make it salacious or detrimental to your personal dignity. What I believe is called, what we call a smear. A smear is when you can't actually say you didn't say it but it's twisted. Uh, Do you notice any difference between American and English dogs aside from their accents? No, (laughs) is the answer to that. (laughs) What's so nice about animals, to answer your question seriously, is that they're universal. Uh, Do you read much fantasy? Quite a bit. I can honestly say that I'm very well into fantasy, and I, I think I'm fairly literate in this sphere. Yes. 
Did you like the Silmarillion? Very much indeed. I reviewed it for a New York magazine called Quest 77, and I gave it such a rave review that several things I said in that review have been quoted by the, uh, the publishers and been quoted all over. I think the Silmarillion is better than the Lord of the Rings. I think it's magnificent. I would draw your attention to two books I think have had a lot of influence on the Silmarillion. One is the Old Testament, and the other is Mallory's Mort D'Arthur, one of the great classics of English literature, a yeah. 15th century story of King Arthur, you know it. Yeah. Uh, and I think that both these books had a strong influence on not only on the way it's written, but the whole form of the book. I found it majestic, dignified, grand and noble and deeply moving. I think the, the idea of this poor guy who's created the Silmarils and then he, he takes this terrible oath that he'll never rest until he's got them back. I think this is the true stuff of English mythological tragedy. I guess I was kind of disappointed in the fact that Galadriel barely appears, and I loved Galadriel. Yes, well, you wanted another Lord of the Rings, but it's no, not reasonable. No, I didn't want another Lord of the Rings. I, I was looking for a, a certain amount of... When Morgoth fell, I wanted that in a little more depth, rather than Morgoth fell and the world changed. You may not like what is done, but you've got to admit it's superbly done. You may not like oranges, but the, boy, these are super oranges. You know what they call it in England? What? The Cellar Million. <laughs> Have you ever read The Once and Future King? Yes, indeed. I know it very well indeed. Do you like it? Very much, yes. Very much. I'd always, I always wish I'd met T.H. White. He mm. died at the age of 56, untimely. I think he drank rather a lot, actually. Uh, he was an amusing and wonderful man. And I, I think, well, I don't think the whole of The Once and Future King is successful, but the one everybody reads, The Sword in the Stone, I'd also draw your attention to that magnificent fantasy, Mistress Masham's Repose. Oh, great. Isn't oh, it wonderful? Great. I wonder if I can write down for you the name of the fantasy, which is my own personal choice for the greatest fantasy in English literature. It may, it's probably not very widely known over here. It is a wonderful book, and when I was a child, it was my great standby. I read it again and again and again. Walter de la Mer, The Three Royal Monkeys. Never heard of it. Well, you get it from a library. You, you won't be disappointed. It's a marvelous fantasy. It's not very long, about 250 pages, deeply moving. It's a marvelous tour de force of, of, of the creative imagination. Oh, I can't right. praise it too highly. Walter de la Mer, of course, was a great poet. He but should be better known. Have you read the Perilandra trilogy? Yes, I have. I'd give that a sort of beta, beta alpha, beta plus plus. Very good, if not absolutely inspired, but a very fine piece of work indeed, I think. The Narnia stories I also like very much. Yeah, I enjoyed them. Yes, I think they're good stuff. And Watership Down goes in there. Oh, I'm glad you like that. <laughs> that naturally. <laughs> One thing is that people are looking for... Uh, great fantasies. There's a book that came out that I was appalled by called The Sword of Shannara. Shall I tell you something? I received a proof copy from the publishers asking whether I would write some words of commendation, mm. uh, what I believe is called a puff, yeah. that they could quote on the dust jacket. And I wrote back and said, well, I'm very sorry. I, I, I hate to knock the work of any fellow author because I know what hard work it is writing a book, but I'm afraid I do not like this book. I was a little stronger. I thought it was an out-and-out ripoff of Lord of the Rings, of Tolkien, and trying to cash in on the Silmarillion eight months prior to the Silmarillion's publication. It was vulgarly written, too. It, it was written in a vulgar manner. That I don't mean bad language or, or, or uh, sexuality. I just mean that the, the quality of the writing was trashy. What do you consider to be the greatest fantasy work you've ever read, other than The Three Royal Monkeys? 
Well, now that is a big question. It brings up the whole question of what is fantasy? This is a very difficult question to answer that, indeed. Would you say Tristram Shandy was fantasy? It's getting on for, isn't it? Uh, I would say that was a, a, a very great fantasy mm -hmm. work, indeed. It's not letting the imagination run free, run wild. I'd say The Water Babies was a wonderful fantasy. Charles Kingsley. I think that's very good indeed. That's a, a children's classic which all English children read. But I suppose the greatest thing ever, fantasy ever written, you'd have to say the two Alice books. A, a great many British officers in the war carried Alice with them everywhere. It's the famous story of how General Montgomery walked into General Horrocks's headquarters one afternoon unexpectedly and found General Horrocks reading Alice. When people ask me what my favorite poem is, I just start Twas Brilling in the Slithy Toves, and that yes. stops them right there. <laughs> or the, 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 the White Knight song, The Aged, Aged Man is Sitting on a Gate, uh, Through the Looking Glass. That's wonderful. Or your old father William, the young man said, and your hair has become very white. And, and yet, yet you, you continually stand on your head. Do you think at your age it is right? In my youth, <laughs> the old man replied with a grin, I feared it might injure the brain. But, but now that I'm, I'm perfectly sure I have none. I do it again and again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that we've pretty much run out of time. You have to catch a plane. And I want to thank you very much. I really enjoyed this. I have enjoyed it too, and I hope we meet again. I hope the listeners enjoy it too. While Richard Adams continued to write, he would publish 14 more books over the course of the next four decades. He never again achieved the success of his first few novels, especially, of course, Watership Down. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves Artwaves podcasts at kpfa.org. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. <laughs>